the text for this afternoon's sermon, Acts chapter 6, the verses 1 through to 7. We've read the whole chapter, so we won't read the text again. But we'll be concentrating on those first seven verses there on page 914 in your Bibles. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do deacons have to do with speaking in tongues? I hope Brother Gavin's not getting worried here. We're not going to expect that from you, Brother Gavin. But there is a connection. Both are gifts, both are charismata, gifts of the Holy Spirit that he gave to the church. Speaking in tongues and speaking direct prophecies from God verbally were temporary gifts that the Holy Spirit poured out on the early church when we didn't have the Bible completed yet. We didn't have the full written Word of God. The, the New Testament church in Acts, for instance, here in chapter 6, they just had the Old Testament. And so while the New Testament was not yet completed and written down, God gave special gifts of prophecy and, and speaking in tongues. They were very exciting gifts. They were kind of like the fireworks for the beginning of the New Testament church. Very exciting. Just like when the queen is, is crowned and there will be all kinds of pomp and circumstance and special things and fireworks, but that doesn't happen every day. It's, it's to mark a special occasion, a special beginning. But there are other gifts of the Spirit which he gave and he continues to give. And if you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see these are the things that actually Paul spends his time on when he gets a chance. When Paul speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, he likes to speak about the gifts that have to do with the ministry of the gospel, the preaching of the word and the communion of saints and the only time that he spends a lot of time speaking about the special gifts is when the church at Corinth is all mixed up and they're too focused on these special gifts, and then Paul has to spend a lot of time correcting them. But when there aren't problems, Paul likes to speak about the gifts as they have to do with the preaching of the Word. If you look at Ephesians 4, it begins with the unity of the church in those first few verses. It speaks about, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then it refers to Christ as a victorious conqueror, and as was the custom in those days, a returning victorious conqueror coming from the wars would have all these captives in his train, and as he rode through the streets and the crowds were cheering, he would throw gifts, gold pieces, and all kinds of wealth that he would share. And then Paul says, well, that's kind of what happened when the Lord Jesus victoriously rose from the dead and ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the Father. He gave gifts, not pieces of gold, something far more precious. Look what he gave. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave the offices of the church. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he gave them, why? Look at verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, for building up the church in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's why these gifts 
of the offices are so amazingly precious because God uses weak, sinful men who really don't feel capable of doing this, but he uses them in all their weakness to draw his people to love and to know Christ ever more. And there is nothing that is more precious than that. And the deacons are very connected to this. The deacons, too, are gifts of the Holy Spirit cooperating with the other offices to build up the church in the love of Christ. If you turn to Romans chapter 12, where Paul also speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, once again, he's not concentrating on the special gifts in these verses that we're going to look at, Romans 12, 4 to 8, but he focuses on the continual gifts, the permanent gifts. So he says, uh, look at uh, verse 4 of Romans 12, that's page 948. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So here he's talking about gifts spread throughout the whole church. Everybody is gifted. Everybody has something to offer. And look at this, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service... And the word there is diakonia. You hear a deacon in there? If Literally, if ministry in ministering, or to invent a, an English word, if deaconry in our deaconing. That's the, that's the Greek here. It has to do with ministry, with service. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul refers to the gifts of, of preaching, teaching, exhorting, leading. Those are connected with the special offices of preacher and elder. And in verse 7, he speaks about the, the deaconry and deaconing, the ministering, the contributing, the acting with mercy. Now, all of these things we just read there in Romans 12 are, are gifts exercised in a general way by all of us in our office of all believers. We're all prophets. We speak the word of God to each other. We're all priests. We're all kings. So they're exercised in a general way by all of us and in a special way by the office bearers who are called to special office. So a little bit of background there about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now we move to Acts chapter 6 and there's a problem in the New Testament church. The disciples are increasing number. There's lots of people joining the church. And there's a complaint that arose. There are widows being neglected. Which widows? Well, the Hellenists are complaining against the Hebrews. And we have to understand the context here that a lot of Jews were living in the diaspora. They were living all over the Roman Empire. And the, the trade language of the Roman Empire was, was Greek. And, and the Romans would have their children uh, educated by Greek tutors. So Greek was a, an important language, and it was a common language for that time in that area. The Hebrews would be the Jews that lived in Palestine there, and the Hellenists would be the Jews that lived abroad and that had come to Jerusalem, that had come to know the Lord Jesus, and were worshiping with the church there. So there are cultural differences here. 
And there's a complaint of one group against the other because the, the Greek-speaking Jews, their widows are being neglected. See, church growth leads to challenges because the more people you have, the easier it is for people to fall between the cracks. The more people you have, the harder it is to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to minister, to contribute their gifts, and to be ministered to. And this is especially coming out in, look at the end of verse 1, the daily distribution. Now note that the Holy Spirit just says the daily distribution. He doesn't bother to introduce it. He doesn't bother to explain it. It's just taken for granted. Of course, there's a daily distribution. It's the daily distribution. Well, why is this just expected and why is this taken for granted? Well, because the church is not a new thing. The church doesn't begin on the day of Pentecost. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is gathered from the beginning to the end of the world out of the whole human race, starting with Adam and Eve. And all of those who come to trust in God alone for their salvation belong to the Catholic church of the Lord Jesus Christ from all times and all places. Now, the church enters into a radical new phase at Pentecost, and in the New Testament dispensation, there are, it's a radical change because no longer do you have to be born to a Jew to be part of God's people. Now, anybody can come in from any background, even Dutch people and German people and uh, Pakistanis and Indians and Australians and, and Argentinians. It doesn't matter what background you're from. As long as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of the family of God. So this is a very exciting change. But it's, so there are new things, but there are also not new things. And one of the not new things is, is that God's people just keep on being God's people. And what they, they do what they've always done. And all through the Old Testament, God has always exhorted his people to reflect his character in the way in which they treat the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the vulnerable, the afflicted. That was built into the law. And if you, if you read through the Old Testament, some of the times when God gets most angry, it's not when people do the wrong ritual, although he can sometimes show his anger there as well, of course, but, but he gets most angry when the poor and the afflicted are trampled. Then his wrath is kindled because it is blasphemy against the character of God to trample on the rights of the poor and the needy. It's who God is. If you turn to Psalm 146, we sang Psalm 146. And it's fascinating because it's hard to translate the last part of the psalm. Verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up the bow down, loves the righteous, watches over the sojourners, upholds the widow. Beautiful things, but it doesn't really capture the depth and the amazingness of the Hebrew behind our translation. And without going to a great big lecture about Hebrew grammar, the point is, is that the psalm isn't just saying that God has done these things or that God does these things, but, but the way the Hebrew is written in the psalm is that this is who God 
is. So if I would translate it literally, the setter free of prisoners, the opener of the eyes of the blinds, the lifter up of those who are bowed down, the lover of the righteous, the watcher over sojourners, the upholder of the widow and the fatherless. That's who he is. Not just what he does, but he does it because that's who he is. That is his character. And it's not just that God's character is to gently take care of the vulnerable. But it is also his character to stand up for their rights, to protect them from the wicked and the oppressor. And we, we read that it, sorry, we read that in Psalm 10, right? You saw that in Psalm 10? How the psalmist cries out to God, says, Lord, those evil people are trampling on the, the poor and the afflicted. They're crushing them. They're taking advantage. They're exploiting. Rise up, O God, and break their arms. Well, why break their arms? Well, so that they can't do bad things anymore. That's who God is. He stands up for righteousness and for justice. And because that is who God is, that is what we do. This is who we are as children of the living God. And it's important for the world to see that. You know, we're living in a time when there's just this, this cacophony of social justice warriors running around burning down civilization, filling the streets with violence. And if you hear what they're saying, they say some really nice things. They say, we should stand up for the oppressed. Amen. We should protect those who are exploited. Amen. You know what the problem is? The problem is that the church ought to be on the forefront of standing against oppression, of standing against injustice, of seeking justice for the poor, protecting the vulnerable, providing for the poor, and denouncing injustice and oppression. We've got to be careful that as church we don't slack off on that duty because we're afraid of being confused with the social justice warrior movement. We've got a job to do. And you see here in Acts chapter 6 that it's just normal. There's the daily distribution. Like, that's what we always do. We take care of the people that need taken care of. And we do it on a regular basis. This is who we are. We care. No one in the congregation of Christ may live uncomforted under the pressure of sickness, loneliness, and poverty. That's what the form says. We're going to read it in a few minutes. And that's what the church here in Acts 6 believes. But there's a problem. Because it's not working properly. There's a snag. Some of the widows are being neglected. Now, how are they being neglected? Well, the scholars spend a lot of time and write a lot of books about this. We don't have time in the sermon to go into the details. Uh, some scholars say, well, the, the women from the Greek-speaking women, the, the widows the older women were sometimes actually hired by the church and supported by the church so that they could partake in the ministry of mercy as women to the, the poor families and to the, the poor people. And so they would kind of assist 
the deacons, not as an ordained office, but just as the office of all believers. And so some scholars say, well, they weren't getting a chance to use their gifts. And that's, that is a possibility. But the classic exegesis, the classic understanding, is, uh, and, and which certainly is also involved here, for sure, is that widows who were Greek-speaking just weren't getting the help that they needed. They weren't getting the support they needed. And there was a problem. And at first, uh, these things were looked after by the apostles. If you just flip one page back in your Bible to page 913, if you still got your Bible open there, check out how it worked until Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Now, here comes the part that's pertinent to our message right now. And brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was a gift for the church, for the poor, for the needy. It was laid at the feet of the apostles. There weren't deacons yet. And that worked when the church was smaller, but now there are just too many people. There's too much stuff happening. And the elders, the apostles, they can't keep up with everything. At first, they were overseeing the preaching and the teaching and the ministry of mercy. I've been there. I've done that as I've planted churches in Brazil. And when I was the only office bearer, or maybe there was one elder and me, or two elders and me, then we would do everything. We would do the preaching and the elder work, and then we would also do the deacon work. And then we were always very happy when the Lord would provide a real deacon. And that would allow us to concentrate on our specific offices. And that's what's happening here. They can't keep up. And so they say, this is, this is not good. It's not as though it's a bad thing to, to minister to the poor, to serve at the tables, make sure that everybody has enough to eat. But if we're doing that so much that we can't preach and we can't pray, then there's a problem. You see, the ministry of mercy is important, but it has to be connected to the Word. It has to flow from the preached Word. Without the preached Word, without the Word of God, then the ministry of mercy is mere social activism which is why when our deacons visit us in our afflictions, when we're sick or when we need comfort or perhaps we even need a material help, they never just drop by or they never just do an e-transfer or drop by with a check. They always pray with us and open the Word of God with us because the Word drives the ministry of mercy of the church. And so the apostles say, listen, we've got to devote ourselves to prayer and, look at verse 4, to the ministry of the Word. And the, the fun thing here is that the Greek for ministry is deaconing, the deaconry of the, of the Word. That's, that's, that's the Greek word behind it. So it's the same word. Every office in the, in the New Testament church, the, the preacher, the elders, the deacons, they're all servants. They're all ministers. They are all Deacons in the sense of being servants, that's the, that's the essence of the word, to serve, to attend to people's needs, to, to minister to their needs. But they minister in different ways. And the apostles say, we need to be focused on ministering to God's people with the preached word. That's what we're going to focus on, and with, and, and with prayer. And so we need help with the practical matters of, of food and, and help and comfort for the afflicted. So they decide that they need some men to do that. 
And this is an aside here. The church in the New Testament has grown up. The church in the Old Testament is a child under the law. The law is like a tutor or a pedagogue to guide the Old Testament church to Christ. The New Testament church is an adult. It's grown up. It's mature. And so in the Old Testament church, everything's all written down, even to the bells on the bottom of the, the vestments of the priest and exactly how the church building, the temple, had to be and what colors and what materials. And in the New Testament church, we have nothing. There are no rules. There's no chapter in the Bible saying how big the church has to be and what structure or how many elders and how many deacons. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Because the New Testament church lives according to the principles of the Scriptures from the Old Testament and applies them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what the church does here is just says, well, here's a problem. We need an answer. So let's choose some man full of the Holy Spirit. And that's totally legitimate. There's no, it's not all set out in a little book of rules like we have in the Old Testament. It's an organic development. You've got to remember that at this time we don't have the New Testament, so this is driven by the revelation of the Spirit as well. Now, what kind of men are they going to look for? These men have to be administrators. They've got to take care of money and resources. But note that they don't just choose bean counters. They don't just choose people that are, that are merely accountants. That just can, they know how to f uh, work with numbers. They know how to organize stuff. That's good. And accountants are very nice people. We have some in the church. But that's not, that, that technical skill of administering numbers and resources is not the only thing that's needed. There has to be more. What do, what, what, what do they have to be? Look at verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. They've got to be men of integrity, men that are respected, that are trusted, that are trustworthy, men that are spirit-filled, and men who are wise. Full of wisdom. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, wisdom is knowing how to live the Word of God, knowing how to live for God in accordance with the will of God. That's wisdom. So we need men who are deacons, says the apostles, who live a godly life and who know very practically how to put God's word into practice. And so this is a spirit-filled office. Over the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, so often the diaconate has kind of been eclipsed. And it's kind of just... Uh, faded away and it's become like an entrance to becoming a, a presbyter, an elder, and then later on a priest. And in many churches today too, the, the deacons are just kind of like the people that open the doors, close the doors, sweep the floor, and make the deposits onto the bank account. Now, that's not what the Bible says right here. The Bible speaks of this office as a spirit-filled office. They are appointed they are presented before the apostles, verse 6, and the apostles pray over them, and the apostles lay their hands on them. And that's significant. They're ordained. And ordination is symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone in power to equip them to do the work of office. Ordination is what happened 
You remember that from Matthew chapter 3, the end of the chapter. Ordination is like when the, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. And from that moment on, he entered into his office as Messiah. He was ordained. And he was equipped by the Holy Spirit. That's what ordination does. And that means that our brother Gavin walks into church in one way and walks out in a different way. Not that he's going to change as a human being, but he will have placed upon him in this service a solemn and awesome and glorious task. And he will not only receive that task from God through the church, but also be equipped for it. That's what God promises as well. That's a great comfort that we all have as office bearers because no one is sufficient in themselves. So the deacon in the scripture is way more than someone who collects money and counts and distributes. It's a high calling. The church preaches the, the grace and the, the mercy of God in Christ. The, the elders exhort us and guide us and encourage us to live in the power of the word. They exhort us and correct us when we stray. They set before us the word and encourage us to grow in the word. And the deacons teach us by word and example how the gospel transforms us to love one another with a sacrificial love, to serve one another, to, to minister to one another, to deacon one another, and to do good not only to each other, but also to all men. First the household of faith, but also to all to all men, also those in our community. And the deacons show us how to do that. They give us a good example in a very practical way. It's very important. We need the deacons. The minister can't spend all week preparing sermons and teaching if he's worried that some lambs of the flock might be suffering uncomforted. Then he can't concentrate. Or if he's wondering if, if, if there are sheep, uh, if, if the sheep are showing love, the love of the good shepherd to one another. And the elders can't encourage us in growing in the knowledge of Christ if they're busy making sure every member is giving and receiving the love of Christ. The deacons have a real important function here. When they do their work faithfully, this allows the elders and the preachers to do their work and to concentrate on their job. And that allows the word to flourish, the word to increase, and the church to grow. So look what happens when the Holy Spirit gives deacons to the church. Did you see that in verse 7 right there? Verse 7, what happens when the Holy Spirit gave deacons to the church? The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's what the Holy Spirit tells us is the result of his gift of deacons to the church. Beautiful and glorious are the results. Brothers and sisters, this is a glorious office. The Old Testament, I think it's the prophet Isaiah, he gives us the picture of the Messiah as a gentle shepherd who, who picks up the little lambs in his arms and carries them along. Such tender love. That's our Lord. And that sweet, gentle, tender, kind aspect of our Lord is especially showcased and taken up 
in the office of deacon. Brothers and sisters, we need to value this. We need to delight in this. Don't be a deacon despiser. Don't be an anti-deacon. Sometimes deacons want to just visit the congregation to see how they're doing, to see if there's any need, and also to evaluate what gifts we have to bless others as they encourage us to grow in the love of the communion of saints. And sometimes people say, what do I want to visit from a deacon for? I have enough money on my bank account. It's a really bad attitude. When the deacons come to us, Jesus is coming to us. They come as ambassadors of the love of Christ in his name. And they come to see how the church can minister to you and to ask you how you can minister to your fellow brothers and sisters, the love of Christ. And so when the deacons speak with us, meet with us, or visit with us, we ought to receive them as if Christ himself is coming to us. Now, the Lord Jesus is certainly a tender and gentle shepherd of his sheep, but not just gentle. We read Psalm 10, right? Psalm 10 shows God as a God who stands up against oppression, who defends the vulnerable. And so there is this gentle strength in a man of God. It's kind of like that word meek that we looked at in in Galatians. Humble, mild, and meek doesn't mean to say weak. It means strong. And so there's a, there's a the, the, the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as loving and kind, but also strong and immovable and standing up for the widow, the orphan, the poor, the needy, the afflicted. And so a woman who has no man in her life to stand up for her, father, brother, husband, son, or if she does have one, he's not doing his job. She needs to know that in the deacons, she has an example of strong, godly, kind, loving brothers in Christ. Not just in the congregation, but also in the community. The deacons lead the way in showing that to the world. Part of the reason that Christianity spread so far and so wide and so quickly in the early centuries is because of the deacons, because of the vibrant diaconal work in saving abandoned babies. In the Roman Empire, they wouldn't chop up the babies like they do in our society nowadays. They would just throw them on some mountainside to die from exposure. And the Christian church would pick up these babies and save their lives. It was the deacons of the church that set up the shelters for travelers so that the the first inns were especially, many of the first inns were especially driven by Christian hospitality, protecting the stranger and the sojourner. It was Christian deacons who set up the graveyards for the poor who had no place to bury their loved ones. 
and whose bodies would not be treated with dignity or respect. It was the Christian church through her deacons that set up graveyards, that set up hospitals for the sick, and the list goes on. Vibrant, glorious diaconal work, not just within the body, but in the community. And we as a church have to do some reflection on this. Over the centuries, we have more and more accepted the government's intrusion into the work of the church as far as the work of charity goes. And nowadays, we figure, well, we're paying so much money to the government, just go to the government, go to the department of such and such and fill out so many forms in triplicate and God, the government will take care of you. And that's a question as to whether we should really be participating that way in society as the church. Something to think about. There's a lot of room for us to grow and to learn from the church of the first centuries in this respect. Well, Brother Gavin, you are about to enter into a glorious office. May the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ fill you and equip you. And congregation, the Holy Spirit is giving us another gift. A man called by God to represent the Lord Jesus Christ himself, ministering to us, loving us, caring for us. Receive him, respect him, encourage him, pray for him, give him and the other deacons the resources they need. And in this way, God will be glorified and the church will be built up in love. And just like here in Acts chapter 6, we know what's going to happen. The word of God will increase and the kingdom will advance. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone the glory. Amen.